The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're taking a closer look at long-acting forms of contraception for women and a potential future form of long-acting reversible contraception for men. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. A little later on, we'll speak with Elaine Listener, Executive Director of the Parsimus Foundation, about Vasilgel, a possible future form of birth control for men. But before we talk about the future, let's talk about the long-acting reversible forms of birth control we have available now for women. I have two guests with me right now. The first is Beth Sundstrom, an assistant professor of communication and public health at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. She is a member of the graduate faculty and the co-director of the Women's Health Research Team. She also holds an adjunct assistant professor appointment at the Medical University of South Carolina, and her research interests include health communication, social marketing, and women's health. Hi, Beth. Welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. Hello. Also with me is Andrea DiMaria, Assistant Professor of Public Health at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina, and also a co-director of the Women's Health Research Team, as well as the current interim Associate Director of the Women's and Gender Studies Program. She also holds an Adjunct Assistant Professor appointment at the Medical University of South Carolina, and her research has primarily focused on women's sexual and reproductive health issues. Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so just before we dive right in, can you guys maybe just tell us a little bit about what the Women's Health Research Team is and what it does? Beth, do you want to take this? The Women's Health Research Team is a collaboration of faculty, undergraduate and graduate students, as well as community partners at the College of Charleston in the city of Charleston and statewide in South Carolina. And our mission is to investigate in an interdisciplinary way issues that impact women's lives. And so we hope to investigate women's reproductive health, women's sexual health, and issues that impact women and girls in our community, in our state, uh, and beyond uh, to improve the lives of women. So I found you guys while I was researching contraception. Um, I was talking to one of our listeners on Twitter, and uh, they posted an article um, uh, that was about some topic of contraception. And I was sort of exasperated and saying like, why is it always the pill, the pill, it's always the pill. And we had this conversation and I realized that this would make a, a perfect topic for a show. So I do want to talk um, about contraception. And I think the best place to start is maybe just talk about different types of birth control and contraceptive methods, because that'll kind of give some people context for some of the stuff we're going to talk about a little later. So can uh, one of you maybe give us a quick overview of what the different types of contraception methods are, a little bit about how they work, their effectiveness, just so people get a sense of comparison? Absolutely. This is Andrea. What we should talk about first are reversible methods of contraception. So that would include the implant, which is inserted into the inner arm, and the IUD, which are hormonal and non-hormonal options. So the arm implant has about a 0.05% perfect and typical failure rate. The hormonal IUD, there are different options that we can talk about. Uh, Marina, Skyla, and Laletta has about a 0.2% perfect and typical failure rate. 
There's also a copper IUD for those women and girls who are interested in having a non-hormonal option. And that perfect use is about 0.6% failure rate. So these are our most effective forms of contraception that we have. Of course, there are also permanent methods of um, contraception or sterility, uh, like female sterilization and male sterilization. When we're talking about less effective methods of conversation or of contraception, it would be things like the pill, the patch, the ring, uh, male condoms, female condoms. Um, while they're still good at preventing pregnancy, the pill, for instance, has about a 0.3% failure rate and typical use has about a 9% failure rate. So here you're seeing a larger difference between the perfect use and the typical use. And that really is related to user error. Um, the patch, for instance, has about a perfect use 0.3% failure rate, whereas typical use, again, is about 9% failure rate. The shot, which most people know as Depo-Provera, has a perfect use rate, failure rate of 0.3%, whereas a typical use uh, failure rate of 6%. So again, a smaller gap in between those Still good methods, but not as effective as the IUD and the implant. So when we're talking about perfect use versus typical use, what are we really seeing here? Basically, like in an ideal world where you take something every day on the exact stroke of noon, uh, you might get this kind of perfect use, but typical is sort of everyone forgets one now and then kind of thing? Right. So we're talking about, you know, if the method was used in a clinical trial, exactly how it was meant to be used when it was meant to be used, right? So the pill introduces a little bit of user error, especially if you are, you know, not taking it at your 24-hour period or within your time frame window. Um, the same with the injection, for instance. You may not be going to your regular appointments every three months or within your time window. Whereas an implant, for instance, something that's inserted by a clinician, its rate is going to be the same for perfect and for typical because there's no really human interaction that's introducing any error. Because we're human, we we forget things. We have a lot on our plates. We, um, you know, we don't always do everything like we're supposed to. So those methodologies that rely on us to do something ourselves, we start introducing a little bit of, of error, which leads to the higher failure rates. So uh, also talking about one of the more popular methods of contraception, which is the condom. Um, when we're talking about perfect use versus typical use with a condom, what are we talking about there? Because most people look at it and say, you know, what's what's the difference? There's only one way to wear a condom. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, with a male condom, we're looking at about an 18% failure rate. And ultimately, it comes down to is, one, the product. So there can be imperfections um, that, you know, happen in the packaging or that humans introduce themselves. But also, most people do not know how to properly put on a male condom, for instance, and disposal as well. Um, with the female condom, although it's a lesser used form of the condom, that one has about a 21% failure rate. So again, it all comes down to really knowing how to properly use the method. Um, and usually we're not trained um, in very much in depth on those things. Everyone knows how to put it on a banana, but that's about it. <laughs> So uh, the longer acting birth control methods, um, I'm thinking specifically of the uh, the implant um, mm -hmm. and the IUD. Now, I know there's an IUD that has a hormonal release, and I believe the implant also is hormone-based. Is that correct? Right. So there are a few IUDs that are hormonal, and that's correct that the implant is also hormonal. Now, there is a copper IUD that actually doesn't use hormones, um, and I've always wondered, how does that work? 
Right. So that is the paraguard. Um, and it works, you know, it's pretty similarly in the way that the hormones function, but it's the copper that does a lot of the preventing of, um, one, the sperm getting, uh, into the uterus. So it will thicken up that cervical mucus. Um, Beth, do you know anything specifically about paraguard other than, um, the copper being the mechanism that delays the sperm from getting into the egg and prevents the uterine line from building up? Sure. The only other thing I would say is that really scientists aren't exactly sure how the IUD works. And so that is where some of the mystery comes from. We certainly know that it creates an inhospitable uterine environment, that it actually physically blocks the sperm uh, from reaching the egg because of that thickening of the cervical mucus. But we do think that there are other mechanisms at play that may not have been completely identified yet. So is there a um, effectiveness difference between the copper IUD and the hormone-based IUD? So there is a slight effectiveness. So for instance, the hormonal IUDs typically have about a 0.2% um, failure rate, whereas the copper IUD, there's a slight difference between perfect use and typical use. So the perfect use failure rate is about 0.6%. So about 0.4% more than the hormonal. And the typical use is about 0.8% failure rate. Again, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to understand, like Beth said, the mechanisms for which how these work. Um, but again, still effective and more effective than some of the other options that are on the market. Okay, so I do want to get into uh, the how effective these are and why there's not as much uptake. But first of all, um, what is the rate of unintended pregnancy in the U.S. right now? I mean, how many of how many people are actively trying not to get pregnant when they have sex but failing? Absolutely, this is Beth. So unfortunately, over the past 20 years, the overall rate of unintended pregnancy in the United States has really remained stagnant at approximately 50% or half of all pregnancies. And so when we talk about unintended pregnancies, public health experts define these pregnancies as those that are not desired now or in the next two years. And we know that according to the CDC or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that 85 out of 100 sexually active women who do not use a method of birth control will become pregnant over the course of one year. So in the United States, these unintended pregnancies cost about $4.6 billion um, in medical costs each year. And we know that unintended pregnancy leads to negative health outcomes for women, children, families, and communities. So we have not done a great job in the U.S. overall in terms of unintended pregnancies. We're still at about half. We have, however, made progress on the teen birth rate, uh, which has continued to decline over the past two decades. So today, among teens 15 to 17, unintended pregnancy and unintended births have decreased by approximately 25% since 2001. However, the U.S. teen pregnancy rate is still seven times higher than other developed countries. And some scholars suggest that we're really just pushing up the age of these unintended pregnancies because approximately 70% of pregnancies among young unmarried women ages 20 to 29 are still unplanned. 
So in the United States, healthy people, which identifies our evidence-based health objectives, aims to decrease the rate of unintended pregnancy to 44% by 2020. That's the goal. And that is where experts come in in trying to increase access to contraception that meets the needs of women, couples, and families, and specifically long-acting reversible contraception. So uh, when it comes to long-acting reversal contraceptions right now, what is the, we know they're more effective. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. Um, in some cases, vastly more effective. Um, but what's the actual use numbers? Like what's, what's the split? Are they, are they being used more often? This is Beth. There has been a modest increase in the use of LARC methods in recent years from 2.4% of contraceptive users in 2002 to 8.5% in 2009. And the latest numbers that I saw from the National Center for Health Statistics say that in 2013, we have increased to 11.6%, which is the highest and most optimistic statistic that I've seen. So this accounts for about 4.4 million women using LARC methods between 2011 and 2013. So this is still very low and even lower when you look at adolescents and young women, where LARC use is only about 1.5% ages 15 to 19 and 4% ages 20 to 24 using these methods. What about uptake in other countries for LARC methods? I'm thinking um, Canada, Britain, or other European sort of first world countries. Are there are there different numbers there? That's a great question. This is Andrea. And yes, there's absolutely different numbers there. Um, according some, to some recent studies, there are about 150 million IUD users worldwide. And it's the fourth most used contraceptive method in the global north. Um, in the United States, however, um, we don't see as high of rates. We know that in the U.S., women who are born abroad are three times more likely to have used an IUD compared to women who were born in America. And that was a study done by Daniels, Mosher, and Jones in 2013. Uh, we also know that a recent study um, done in 2014 indicated that European women were more familiar with and likely to use LARC methods, ranging from about 10 to 32 percent of the population. So that's a pretty big number. Um, the numbers are a little bit different in developing countries, for instance, um, uh, on the continent of Africa and in India, women and girls cited cultural and religious reasons for non-use of LARC methods, um, despite the high rates of unintended pregnancy that happen in those re regions. Um, Brazilian women as well tend to choose to switch from their current contraceptive method to a LARC method because of the increased efficacy of these methods. Um, and they tend to have high continue rate, continuation rates after one year, which is really good. And that was from a study done by Ferreira et al. in 2013. So we know that, that women are using these and they're using them at higher rates than in the U.S. And so we can certainly learn from other countries and how we can increase our uptake here in the U.S. to be more effective at preventing pregnancy. So then my question very naturally is, why aren't we seeing more of an uptick? I mean, they're clearly more effective. 
effective. Speaking from personal experience, they're way less hassle. Um, why is there, is it reluctance? Is it the information just isn't out there? Why aren't we seeing more people adopting these methods of birth control? This is Beth. I think it's important for some context to look at the fact that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists only recommended the IUD and implant as first line contraceptive options for all women and adolescents in 2012. So that was the first time that ACOG actually came out and said, these are top tier recommendations. And it was only in 2014 that the American Academy of Pediatrics followed suit and recommended LARC as the best contraceptive choice for adolescents as well. So even though research shows that LARC options are safe and well-liked by users and more effective than oral contraception, there has been a shorter timeline that these have been actually recommended by national medical bodies. Absolutely. So this is Andrea, and I will make a few brief comments about some of the work that we have have done. So we've actually um, done some interview and focus group data and quantitative survey data with women living in uh, South Carolina and various regions and found that there's really a lack of information and awareness about LARC methods, especially about the effectiveness of LARC methods. And so one thing that we did was we did some formative audience research to develop campaign messages to really get this information out there to show women um, the effectiveness rates, um, the usage rates of these methods, because overall they were just lacking information. Um, we also found that our participants in our studies feared the side effects or the risks of LARC methods um, and really, you know, overestimated the risks of LARC methods and underestimated the risks of options like the pill, for instance. Um, some of our participants also views LARC methods as an alien method, for instance. So, you know, having some concern about having something placed in them and not really understanding this foreign body. Uh, I would say lastly, too, there was some concern over medical resistance to LARC methods, especially in conversations with clinicians or healthcare providers, for instance, and also conversations with family members who were still um, under the impression that LARC methods could cause harm. So I, I want to dig in just a little bit more to a couple of those points. Um, the first is that people were uh, that people seem to be a little bit resistant to having something alien. Uh, they, there's a sense of alienness. Is this just there's something very familiar in, in taking a pill and it kind of disintegrates and goes away really quickly, whereas you know an IUD or an implant is something sort of physical and man-made that doesn't really go away? In our research, social norms and beliefs regarding female reproductive health and sexuality determined acceptable behavior behavior and appropriate forms of contraception. So I certainly think that there is a physical aspect to the understanding of LARC methods as alien or weird, as well as a social aspect. And although support for contraception is almost universal in the United States, in, according to the Guttmacher Institute, more than 99% of reproductive aged women who have ever had sexual intercourse have used at least one contraceptive method. And this is true for women of all religious denominations. There is actually a pattern that women follow in terms of contraceptive use across their reproductive lifespan. So most women begin with use of condoms at first sexual intercourse. Then they move on to the pill to prevent pregnancy. And after they've achieved their desired number of children, they look to sterilization. 
So according to the Guttmacher Institute, if a woman plans to have two children, she will need to use some form of contraception for up to 30 years. And so women really identify birth control as the pill. They rely on condoms and the pill as their main methods of birth control over their whole lives. In fact, four out of five women who have ever had sexual intercourse have taken the pill. And although the pill, as we've talked about, has a 9% typical use failure rate, approximately 50% of women under 25 years old rely on the pill as their primary method of birth control. So the social norm of birth control as the pill is especially prevalent among younger women. And even when women identify dissatisfaction with the pill, they don't like to take it at the same time every day. They can't remember to take it at the same time every day. They are engaged in what we have called a paradox of inertia. So this is the typical um, reproductive health cycle that most of their family and friends engage in. And so they perceive LARC methods as something outside of the social norm. They perceive it as weird, perhaps as dangerous. Um, and they assume that because most people are on the pill, that must be the most effective option. Really interesting. So we, Andrea mentioned as well, um, a misconception around the risks of different forms of birth control. So what are the actual risks of the pill versus the uh, IUD and uh, the implant. I think it's important when we talk about the risk of contraception to think about the risk of menstruation, uh, the risk of pregnancy, and the risk of childbirth. Because I think narratives about the risk of contraception tend to downplay the, the risks of menstruation, pregnancy, and childbirth. So if we start by talking about menstruation, uh, women in our studies really negotiated complex perceptions about menstruation. They wanted a natural cycle, but they wanted moderation. They wanted to be able to moderate their cycle. Um, and existing research shows that about 73% of women have skipped pill-free intervals and 38% regularly alter their cycle. So women are certainly using the pill to miss a period, perhaps for a vacation or um, for an important exam. But uh, these women really rely on this withdrawal bleeding as if it is a true period. And we know that research shows there's no medical reason reason for women to have a monthly pill-free interval. Um, and a Cochrane database systematic review supports the safety of continuous use of hormonal contraception, which may actually improve compliance and increase satisfaction among women. And one of the things uh, I remember reading in your research was that you pointed out how often we talk about the risks of contraception, the short-term risks, the long-term risks, the common ones, the uncommon ones, but rarely do we talk about the risks of pregnancy and childbirth. And, and why is that? I think any risks associated with contraceptive methods should be compared with the risks of pregnancy and childbirth. And studies actually show that the use of any method of contraception prevents more deaths from pregnancy and childbirth than are associated with the method use. So to put that another way, for young, healthy non-smokers using the pill, the risk of death is 240 times lower than the risk of death related to pregnancy complications. But despite this, approximately half of women in a recent study incorrectly believed that hormonal contraception is more dangerous than pregnancy. And scholars suggest that these results may be attributed to media representations of pregnancy as a natural, as you mentioned, that word again, a natural and healthy process compared to the highly publicized reports of contraceptive complications. 
So I think what's really fascinating to me is that recently there have been a number of large cohort studies that have showed reduced rates of cancer among women who have ever used hormonal contraception and lower overall risk of death among current and past users of hormonal contraception compared with non-users. So lower overall risk of death. I think that's um, pretty powerful. So in other words, hormonal contraception offers a net health benefit to users in addition to pregnancy prevention. So I think that decades um, of perceptions of menstruation and childbirth and pregnancy as natural continue to serve as barriers um, to uptake of contraception and LARC methods. And so we need to really reconceptualize these risks out of the normative natural processes of menstruation, pregnancy, and childbirth. The idea of the pill as sort of this normative cultural trend, um, I started to think about and then really thought about it more as I as I read the book and uh, some of the research that you guys have put out. And it, it struck me as interesting uh, in your interviews with college-aged women about with college-aged women about contraception is how a lot of them seem to identify the daily ritual of taking the pill to be a sort of empowering experience, or at least see it as some kind of daily extension of control over their, their bodies and their lives, which I'd never really thought of that before. Absolutely. We talk about the myth of perfect use, and it really emerged as participants wanted to be in control by taking the pill every day. So even though many women described imperfect adherence, they talked about the inconvenience, the even impossibility of taking the pill at the same time every day. Uh, the myth of perfect use uh, found that women may believe that imperfect use is effective enough. Um, again, this comes from the idea that women believe all methods uh, may be equally effective, and especially because so many women take the pill, it provides confidence in the effectiveness of this method. And these women that we've talked with perceived a loss of control uh, because of the long duration of LARC methods and the lack of user involvement. So women that we talked with believed that they were responsible enough to take the pill every day. And so these non-daily options even indicated irresponsibility. So they would point to, to friends, to women that they know and say, well, you know, that person can't remember. That person is irresponsible. So that's a good method for them. But for me, I I want to be in control. I want to take the pill every day. Even in the same conversation, they would talk about not being able to take the pill at the same time every day consistently. Uh, they still felt like that empowered them and gave them control. And so our research has found that campaign messages need to empower young women to maintain control of, maintain control of their health by highlighting the increased effectiveness of LARC options. Because I don't think that most women know that there's a difference in effectiveness. And so uh, LARC options actually give women more control over their reproductive health but the perception is very different. It's really interesting. You mentioned the word responsibility. And and I do feel like the pill has become this kind of cultural rite of passage where you show you're grown up enough to take responsibility for your own life by remembering to do this just this tiny little thing every day. But that's a lot of pressure to put on someone at this phase of their life, this don't forget or it may completely change everything. Well, and much of the way that the pill is marketed is really this lifestyle type of 
drug, you know, not only does it prevent pregnancy, but it does all kinds of other wonderful things. And, and coming back to this idea of the menstruation, uh, one of our recent studies was looking at that women did like to take the pill because they like to, like to be in control of when they menstruated. They know that if they wanted to stop a cycle, that they would have the ability to do that. And the idea of a LARC method totally ceasing menstruation was not appealing or natural or healthy to some of the women, but the idea that they could once in a while have the control to stop menstruation was something that they were interested in. So I do also want to talk a little bit about a conversation that's been happening fairly recently, because um, we, as long-acting methods of uh, reversible contraception have come out, um, there's been uh, some fairly vocal conversation about having teenagers use that as the birth control method of choice. And it does seem like the perfect fit. I mean, when you're 16, 17 years old, I wouldn't have been able to remember to take the pill every day. Um, it seems like a really natural option. But it, what has the response been to some of these conversations that uh, are coming from places like the CDC? Like Beth mentioned before, with ACOG making, you know, LARC methods as a you know, recommendation first go-to safe mechanism to prevent pregnancy, not only for women, but for girls too. That has been a recent recommendation. And so in terms of uptake of these methods um, and looking at the effectiveness and creating this social norm of using these, um, ACOG is saying that they are safe and they are effective for girls to be using. However, that recommendation has not been around for too long. So hopefully, as clinicians become more and more aware of the recommendations, they begin having these conversations with their younger patients so that they know that these methods are safe, they're effective, they are long-term, and they are recommended for girls their age. Has there been any cultural or medical pushback to these ideas of having long-acting forms of contraception for teenage girls? So right now, the ACOG is saying that LARC methods are top-tier contraceptives, and they have pregnancy rates less than 1% per year, and that they have high satisfaction among most groups. Of course, there are women who would be at potential risk for instance, women who have a history of sexually transmitted infections, for instance, may be at greater risk. But at this point, um, they're really the first go-to method. So uh, one of the experiences that I have talked about uh, several times with female friends and, and heard about from other women that, I, that I've talked to about forms of contraception is some of the um, conversations we're actually having in the doctor's office when we go and ask for uh, an IUD for information about about the implant. And um, so I am horrible at the pill and was always horrible with the pill. And when I was taking it, it was actually more of like a backup method. And a few years ago, I went to my doctor and asked about getting an IUD, um, having heard about it. And uh, I was referred to another clinic to get one inserted because um, it wasn't something my, my personal doctor was able to do. But when I showed up for my appointment at that clinic, that doctor informed me I was not a candidate for an IUD um, because I was too young, because I wasn't married, because I'd never had any children. And apparently that completely disqualified me for, for getting an IUD. So I went home with a with an alternative um, and spent the entire next week researching it and found out that that particular doctor
doctor didn't know in that case exactly what she was talking about. So uh, my question is, is my story unique? Because um, I've heard some other sort of similar conversations with other women I've talked to about their conversations with some of their doctors. Um, are, how many doctors are turning away women who are looking for some of the LARC options like IUDs and implants? And and if they are being turned away, why? I mean, shouldn't our doctors be more informed about this? Absolutely. I don't think your story is unique. And according to many of the women we have talked with, physicians strongly recommend the pill and infrequently discuss or offer LARC methods. And when women request LARC methods, as you did, many healthcare providers say the same things. They're too young for the implant or the IUD. They haven't had children yet. Um, and, and this really emerges because the FDA did not approve IUDs for women who had not had children until 2005. So that even is a, a relatively new approval. And many of the women we talked to said, just as you had done, that they had to be persistent to obtain a LARC method. So I think this speaks to the idea that clinicians continue to serve as a gatekeeper to LARC, and they require up-to-date information and recommendations regarding these methods. A recent study said that only about one half of OBGYNs offer the implant in their practice and they cite a lack of patient interest and a lack of training as the most frequent reasons for not offering this method. But I think that we are on the verge of seeing this change because just last month in October 2015, ACOG actually strengthened its recommendations regarding the use of LARC methods as the most effective and safe forms of reversible contraception. And they recommended a number of strategies for physicians to reduce barriers and increase access access to these methods, including providing counseling about all methods, but actually encouraging their patients to consider the implant in IUD among all women, including women who had not yet had children and adolescents. So I think that your story is is unfortunately not unique. It's it's definitely a barrier that we're seeing. And we're very hopeful that, that we are sort of seeing the tide change on this. But a lot of our work actually in the community is is around going to physicians and finding out who actually does these insertions so that we can provide that information to women because we certainly don't want to get women excited about these methods and then have no place for them to get them. There was a pilot program with long-acting reversible contraceptive methods in that ran in Colorado. Um, are either of you familiar with this study? Yes. So could you maybe just walk us through it really quickly? Um, what was done, who was involved, and what were the results of the project? Sure. The Colorado Family Planning Initiative trained providers and financed LARC method provision at Title X funded clinics. So the program offered teenagers and low-income women free IUDs and implants, and the results were overwhelming. Between 2009 and 2011, LARC use among 15 to 24-year-olds grew from 5% to 19%. And the birth rate among teenagers across the state decreased by 40% between 2009 and 2013. By 40%, 40%. That's correct. Okay. <laughs> and today, about one-fifth of women ages 15, ages 18 to 44 in Colorado use a LARC method. So we talked about those statistics earlier. Th these 
results are really overwhelming. And the program was funded by a private grant from the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation and has been called the real world version of the Contraceptive Choice Project in St. Louis. And the Contraceptive Choice Project is an observational clinical trial that basically found the same thing. After researchers removed financial barriers to contraception and counseled women about all methods of birth control, including the most effective options, 75% of about 10,000 women enrolled in the trial selected LARC methods. So I think that the takeaway is that when women are provided with comprehensive, unbiased counseling about contraceptive options, and not simply presented with a list of 15 different options, but actual comprehensive counseling, they overwhelmingly choose LARC options. And the research shows that they are satisfied with these options, and they stick with them over the long term. Given the 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 Colorado study when things were covered with a huge uptake um is this going to be implemented all over the place is there another study plan i mean what's the next step this model is being widely adopted in local and statewide and national campaigns. In 2011, the Ad Council, in partnership with the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy, designed the first national multimedia public service campaign to help women identify a method that best suits their lifestyle. And the website Bedsider, bedsider.org, offers an interactive online support system providing facts about methods and recommending the IUD and implant. But of course, that is a media program, so it does not provide the cost-free um, methods. So that, so that is based on the idea that when women have the right information, they will choose LARC methods. Um, here in South Carolina, there is a contraceptive access campaign called Choose Well, which aims to improve access to effective contraceptive methods, especially implants and IUDs, and to increase education so that women can make intentional decisions uh, about when to start a family. So uh, there's also a program in New York, and, and we're seeing these media campaigns spring up all over the country. But we know that even in Colorado, after they had these am amazing results, the the General Assembly took funding away from that program, uh, and they did not get funding this year to continue that program. So they are looking to make that up with grants, um, but it, it's very difficult to find funding uh, for these methods, even though we know they are so effective. <sighs> <laughs> that is that is my sad sigh of money being taken away. <laughs> um, I just want to end with a, a speculative question. So let's just uh, speculate wildly for a moment here. If all forms of contraception were made 100% free tomorrow in the US, and uh, accurate information about the risks and the effectiveness of them were out, what would that mean? I mean, what would it change? And what impact would that have? You could take and answer this question from different approaches. Of course, we would like to say that if everything was free and everything was completely safe, that we would use the most effective methods. But like we've said before, and Beth touched in depth about, the, the social culture really has to be there first, too. So we know that, you know, price is a barrier and that knowledge is a barrier, but also so is this idea of something being um, socially or culturally um, the norm. And so we still need to make some progress in that, uh, as well as reducing some of the other barriers that you had just mentioned. And I would say that 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recognized family planning as one of the 10 great public health achievements of the 20th century. And the World Health Organization and the United Nations and the UN Population Fund talk about family planning as a universal human right. And so I would hope that if, if all methods of, of birth control were, were free to women, that uh, we started off by talking about this 50% uh, rate of unintended pregnancy. And we know that research shows that 43% of unintended pregnancies are a result of user error or inconsistent contraceptive use, which is frequently linked with user-dependent contraceptives like oral contraceptive pills or condoms. So my hope would be that if we could increase access to these more highly effective contraceptive methods like the IUD and the implants, that we could really usher in a new modern era of contraception and really fulfill this public health and clinical imperative to reduce rates of unintended pregnancy. Beth and Andrea, thank you so much. Um, it, really interesting research you guys do. And some of the interview uh, quotes and uh, snippets are really fascinating to read and, and made me think about kind of go back in time and think about myself at different times and, and some of the people that I know. Um, so thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you thank for you. having us. Yes, thank you. So if you want to learn more about the Women's Health Research Team, uh, we will have links for you to click on the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we'll speak with Parsimus Foundation Executive Director Elaine Listener about the Vasilgel Project, a possible future non-hormonal form of contraception for men. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Elaine Listener, Executive Director of the Parsimus Foundation, a California-based foundation focused on new contraceptives. The foundation's largest project is bringing Vasilgel, a long-acting non-hormonal male contraceptive, to market. Elaine, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. So before we talk about Vasilgel specifically, um, right now, what are the birth control options if you're male? So right now, men really only have two options. Um, and they're using those two options quite a bit, despite that, uh, despite their limitations. But really, it just comes down to condoms and vasectomy, unless you count withdrawal, which, which some people do, and <laughs> but it is plagued by limited reliability in real-world use. So uh, vasectomy is sort of the equivalent of tying the tubes for women. It's cutting the sperm, the tube that the sperm swim through. And people don't talk about it a lot, but actually it's quite used. Um, about 60,000 men in Canada get vasectomies each year, about, uh, about half a million, 500,000 in the U.S., in the larger population in the U.S. So there's this idea that men wouldn't use contraceptives, but behind the scenes, they are, even though vasectomy has to be considered permanent. And so that's the big issue with vasectomy is it's not really an option for 
younger men who are still thinking about having kids later or men who just don't want to entirely close that door. It can sometimes be reversed with very expensive microsurgery, but there's no guarantee of that. So it has to be thought of as permanent. The other option, which we all know about, is condoms, which are very important, especially in new relationships and for disease prevention. But if we're honest about it, people do get tired of condoms. And that's reflected in the real world, uh, the real use pregnancy rates, whether that's misuse or lack of use or use a little too late. Condoms can be very, very reliable in perfect use. But when people have been together six months, six years, they don't necessarily still want to be using a method that has to be part of every sex act. So men in the US and Canada are actually contributing an, a, a sometime, to some people, surprising amount. It's, it's a new generation and men are contributing a third to a quarter to a third of the contraceptive use in countries like the US and Canada. But there is a need for something that is long-acting but reversible. The Parsimus Foundation is a not-for-profit, and it seems like most of the places that are doing research here are not-for-profits. I mean, are there any for-profit companies researching male contraception? <laughs> there were, and there are a few now. Big Pharma has almost entirely dropped out. Um, there was a round of mergers around 2007, and a lot of these companies decided there was a lot more promise in developing, for example, cancer cures where you're treating very sick people and they won't complain if you, you know, you can practically kill them without people complaining versus treating healthy young people for long periods of time, which brings up liability issues. Many of those big pharma companies also had products already in use for contraception, various female pills. So there's also not a lot of point if you're big pharma in cannibalizing your own market. In US and Canada, most people are using something. They, they may not like what they're using, but they're using something. And that something probably comes from Bayer or one of a couple other companies. So, it really takes nonprofits or smaller companies to take something like this forward and, and to realize the demand for it too. Because I, I think because the big pharma companies were trying to repurpose their hormonal female contraceptives, they figured out that, that men were not going to be that excited about being subjected to what women have been subjected to and being guinea pigs for, for, for a hormonal experiment. So it takes taking a new approach and a smaller company really that's willing to see a need and go after it. Okay, so let's actually get into Vasilgel and how it works. How does it work? So Vasilgel is like a potentially reversible vasectomy. So a gel is injected into the same tube that would be cut for a vasectomy. And rather than cutting it, this gel accumulates on the inside of the tube and basically filters out the sperm. Um, it's, it's a very neat structure. It's almost like a, a Swiss cheese structure or a mesh structure. And the sperm heads are about three microns across and they're too big to make it through, through the mesh, um, or through the holes. But some fluid can pass, which we're seeing in the initial animal studies results in less back pressure on the epididymis, which is the sperm storage area near the testes. 
So basically you inject this gel and it's it's just a five to 10 minute procedure. A lot of your listeners, I bet, have actually had vasectomies because it's quite prevalent in Canada and fairly prevalent in the US. But for those who haven't, it's not the same as castration. <laughs> it doesn't change hormones. It's just cutting the tube that they swim through. And this filters out the sperm in that same tube. Then if a man changes his mind or has a life change a number of years later, the idea is that the gel can actually be flushed out with another injection. And I say idea because this has been proven in a related polymer gel that was studied in India and has been in use in, in men for several decades in clinical trials there. But it has not been proven in vasal gel yet, which is related and similar, but not the same. So we can't, can't make claim, claims about that until it's known for sure. So you mentioned the, were, the group working in India. I believe that's the, that's the uh, very long named Reversible Inhibition of Sperm Under Guidance Project yeah. <laughs> or RISUG. <laughs> yeah, RISUG or RISUG. Yeah. Yeah. So how are the two projects different? They started several decades ago and got approvals from the Indian regulators to go into clinical trial. And that is a patent on a SMA polymer, to get technical here, um, but SMA standing for styrene maleic anhydride mixed with DMSO as a basically a solvent or a carrier um, and a low molecular weight. This is SMA styrene maleic acid, so a slightly different polymer at a much higher molecular weight. So the issue that we confronted when we licensed, we, we actually licensed the foundation, uh, licensed the rights in 2010 to pursue RISUG and quickly found that it was going to be a challenge to get it through the U.S. regulators because styrene maleic acid wants to convert over time. And we thought, yeah, and, and how do you prove to the regulator that what you made six months or a year ago is really going to reliably be the same thing? So we took a gamble and said, okay, anhydride, once it's in the body, converts to acid. What if we just try the acid form and see whether it works? And it was a big gamble, but we did both in rabbit studies, and they both worked. So um, we've gone with an uh, acid form, starting maleic acid, which is much more stable. Uh, but the general concept is the same of a gel in, in the vas deferens. So the data from India is very reassuring, knowing that there are men who've who've had that polymer for decades and are doing fine. But we do have to start from the beginning to current FDA and, um, and other regulator standards. One of our Patreon listeners, uh, when they heard we were doing this interview, he, he added a, an interesting question to the thread was that um, uh, during ejaculation process, he wants to know where the sperm go because he's imagining a buildup of pressure and then a small scale rupture and it made him cringe. <laughs> but he figures this probably isn't the case if it's being approved and sold on a larger scale. So how does that work for the ejaculation process? There is not a small scale rupture. The sperm are reabsorbed by the body. And this is a question we hear quite a bit on, on our Facebook page for Vasyl Gel. Um, it's just like if a man didn't have sex, that the sperm also get reabsorbed by the body. Okay, so this is something that would happen normally. There's nothing happening here uh, since the tubes have been blocked that wouldn't happen sort of quote-unquote naturally in the real world. 
You know, that's it's actually uh, an interesting question in that some of the other approaches that have been tried to blocking the vas deferens have created ruptures. Um, there have been silicone plugs that were put in. There's a, there was a double silicone plug called the intravas device, and all sorts of clever and wild and wacky things have been proposed over the decades. Um, copper wire, um, et cetera, et cetera. And actually injectable, I mean, you might think, well, couldn't you just inject super glue or or medical grade glue and the answer is that a lot of those have created ruptures that if you have the the, the neat thing about the the hydrogels the the gels like this with with a porous structure is that you do let off some of that pressure and and it's flexible versus the solid plugs what they found in many studies including with thousands of men there I was just looking at a study with 12,000 men I think in China from a decade or so ago and a high percentage of those men where they put in i think that was that was a silicone or an mpu plug those men did have ruptures because if you put in enough of a solid plug to fill the vas um the vas is wants to stretch around a plug so either you put in not very much and the vas stretches and you get leakage or you put in a lot more and the vas ruptures and <laughs> then you do create that situation that your your listener was talking about with um, the body creates antibodies to clean up those sperm. So it's a nice, I mean, it, it's actually not the end of the world, and but it's nice to have things be staying in a contained system within the tube and not be having that sort of situation. So what is the procedure like? How how does it compare to a vasectomy procedure-wise? It's um, it's very similar except for the last bit where there's no cutting. So a vasectomy has changed over the years. There's something called NSV, which stands for no scalpel vasectomy. And I mean, I, if I were a guy, I wouldn't even want to hear the word scalpel, you know, even with the no before it. But... I'm imagining many men <laughs> listening right now just making the best faces. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know believe it or not despite the stereotypes about you know the things that get said um men apparently have gotten over that and and thousands are heading every year to um get vasectomies and in fact in Canada there are two expert expert doctors one Dr. Weiss in in Ottawa and Dr. Lebrec in Quebec who I think Dr. Weiss has done over 36,000 vasectomies now like Basically, everybody in town knows him. <laughs> so what these top people do when they do a vasectomy is they just make a small hole in the, in the scrotal skin, and they don't have to even cut the skin. They basically just stretch a small hole, fish out the vas, and then uh, cut it, tie it off, cauterize one end, drop it back in, and pretty much put a Band-Aid on. And, and I actually said to Dr. Lebrec in Ottawa a few years ago at a conference, well, now that vasectomy is a 10-minute procedure, and he said, no, a four-minute procedure. <laughs> so that's the, still the basic procedure. But once they have made the small hole in the skin, fished out the vas, which is quite close to the surface, um, they then don't have to cut it and spend the time carefully tying it off. They um, take a, a syringe with this gel, a cannula, a soft cannula, put the cannula into the lumen of the vas, the central, central channel of the vas, make sure that they're in it, which is the trickiest part and why it will take well-trained doctors to do this. And once they're sure they're in it, then you just inject um, a quantity of this gel and... 
pretty much you're done, drop it back in and on your way. So as you mentioned, the main idea behind Vassal Gel is that it's reversible. So uh, walk us how, through how it would get reversed. I'm assuming you say it's an injection. Would it be basically the same procedure as getting it put in just with something else? Yeah, very much so. Um, it would be, once again, just making a small hole in the skin to expose the vas deferens. And then rather than injecting gel, injecting the dissolving solution, which is sodium bicarbonate solution. And you want to do it slowly and gradually so that, so that it has some time to work. Um, and that's pretty much it. Is there any idea how long it takes fertility to return after the procedure would be reversed? That will, uh, I mean, you, you can you can look at animal studies to give an indication. And in our rabbit study, we didn't see full return of fertility within the first weeks. It was more a matter of months. But rabbits are also quite delicate to work with. So the real, the real information on that will come from human studies. And we have enough safety information at this point to be pretty convinced that we should be able to go into human trials next year. And there are, there are actually 29,000 men and women waiting to hear about these trials um, from around the world, mostly US, Canada, UK. But the thing is, those trials are going to be very expensive and we are a small foundation. Um, as you asked about before, it's really fallen to nonprofits like the Guttmacher Foundation and then government entities like the U.S. Agency for International Development, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. Surprisingly little work outside of the U.S., which, which is surprising to me because I tend to think of Europe as being so on the forefront in terms of openness about things and, and also Canada with, with um, government health care that there would be an acknowledgement of how this could be really beneficial. But it's been left to nonprofits and nonprofits and government agencies have often spent their money on doing yet more early work because you can do a mouse study of a very cool new, you know, gene knockout technology and it's all very exciting for 100,000 or 200,000. But now we're at the point where it's millions. So we've been just hobbling along on a, on a shoestring basis here with the foundation and um, doing the best we can. And I think gotten surprisingly far to have made it through rabbit studies and baboon studies and have a huge awareness um, in the US and Canada. But this is the point where we have to figure out, do we need to bring in social investors, um, men who want this enough that they're interested in, yeah, every, everybody wants a return, but not necessarily making a killing because, because there's a dual bottom line here. One is, yes, if you're producing a contraceptive, you need to bring in enough money to stay afloat and not always be begging donors for, for the next, you know, 50 cents. But at the same time, it needs to be accessible and affordable and not have the kind of situation like with the Mirena IUD um, that was developed with taxpayer money in the U.S. by a nonprofit um, and is basically a $5 piece of plastic but ended up being on the market for $300, $600, $900. Even the British government couldn't negotiate them down below $160. So, um, so we're headed for clinical trials. Uh, we're headed for trials next year and we need to raise the money to make that happen while hanging on to our 
our mission and our goals of really having public accessibility of this of this technology in mind. So for people who are interested in watching the research you guys are doing and maybe supporting you or somehow getting involved in any of the trials that may happen in the future, uh, where can they go to get more information? Vasilgel.org or just Facebook Vasilgel. And we're very interested in hearing from men and women and also potential social investors who would like to help push this forward. Elaine, thanks for joining me today. It's been great and wonderful to get to share our excitement about this with you. If you want to learn more about Elaine Listener, the Parsimus Foundation, or Vassal Gel, you can find links in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. For those of you who are already supporting the show on Patreon, you'll be very happy to know we've got a whopping 40 minutes of extra content coming to the Patreon-only stream this week from this episode. We had some great post-show conversations with all three of our guests, and that extra content should be up for you by Wednesday. If you're not yet a Patreon of Science for the People, but have been thinking of supporting us there and keeping the show going, please do. We regularly post extra content, including additional questions and topics that just didn't make it into the final cut of the show. You can find us on Patreon using the donate link on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. You can also find links to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, as well as links to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or the podcast app of your choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.